Hallo, mijn naam is Jara Toenders en ik ben een Healthy Start Fellow at Erasmus University Rotterdam. Hallo, mijn naam is Wanda Templer. Ik ben Child and Adolescent Psychiatrist en Clinician Scientist at the Sophia Children's Hospital. And I clearly remember being involved in the mental health care of one of my patients. She was a student when she first got sick, first experienced her psychotic symptoms, but she didn't have a lot of support. And gradually she actually seemed to be losing more and more. She lost her house. She wasn't able to stay in university. She got into a troubled financial situation and ultimately she ended up on the streets. She received treatment, medication for her uh, psychotic symptoms and she got into a whole program. And ultimately, after a couple of years, she was actually able to re-enter a university, went into social work and really put up a program of helping other people in a similar position like hers. And that's really inspiring if you're able to walk along for a certain time and see how people show resiliency to such impactful experiences that they go through. Welcome to this all-new three-part spin-off series, Researching a Healthy Start. In this series, inspiring researchers and practitioners in the Netherlands talk about their daily work with and for use as part of the Healthy Start Consortium. As in every episode, the guests will talk about their past, present, and future. In this episode, we will listen to Yara Tunders and Wanda Tempelaar, who talk about their work on youth mental health and mental well-being. They also share with us what it was like to work in clinical practice and clinical research in Australia and Canada, how inspiring it is to see youth who successfully deal with mental illness, and how lived experiences of youth enriches clinical practice and research. All right, let's start with the episode. Welcome, Wanda. Thank you for joining us today. As in every episode, we'll start talking about the past. Why did you become interested in the topic of mental well-being? So in high school, I got motivated to become a doctor and I was able to enter med school by the time I got 19. Early on in med school, I became interested in the topic of mental health because I was very impressed by the overall functioning of our human body and even more how intriguing an organ the brain is, how it's able to generate consciousness, thoughts, behaviors and sensory experiences. During my internship and rotations in med school, I was usually interested in both the physical and mental aspects of illness. And again, how fascinating it is to see how different kind of people respond or react to different illnesses. I clearly remember doing an oncology outpatient clinic and just being intrigued by how those different people responded quite differently to the illnesses that they were suffering from. And I really wanted to continue with this line of work, being able to check in what kind of approach would work for what kind of people. Um, so during med school, this led me to focus more on domains like this, like internal medicine, rehabilitation science, and also psychiatry. Yeah, how about you? How did you get interested in mental health? So I became really interested in mental health, I think already early on as well. And I actually find it quite funny because I think our our stories are a bit similar, but it, and we ended up in different places. So I was also always really interested in the clinical health of people and how different people reacted to different diseases or disorders they might suffer from. Um, but I didn't go the clinical route. I instead did the research route. Um, so during my master's, I did a couple of internships in mental health. And I was really interested in why some people developed a certain disorder, whereas others might not have. 
And during my PhD in uh, neuropsychiatry, it was about brain alterations in young people with depression. I realized I wanted to know a bit more about the normative development of mental health and mental well-being as well. So how do some people develop problems with their mental health, whereas others didn't? And so I was also interested in not just the more problem part, but also the more positive part and protective factors. Why do some factors help people to not develop mental ill health, whereas others do? And why did you decide to become a practitioner in combination with a researcher? That's a really good question. I think it's not really a very explicit decision, I have to say. So by the end of med school, I figured out that I wanted to continue in the field of psychiatry. During med school, you have to do clinical rotations, but electives as well. So I reached out to one of the um, psychiatrists at the psychiatry department at the university that I was studying at, and I did an elective in that department. And during that elective in research, I actually noticed how great it is to work with fellow researchers and to really get into a specific question, try to understand what's going on, try to develop some kind of theories and try to also develop like a practical plan to actually research that question. So I had a really good time in that elective. But most of the um, colleagues I was working with, they were already in their residency. So they were on their path of becoming a psychiatrist. So I got connected with them and I actually asked for advice and they told me, okay, you should reach out to that and that like supervisor of all the trainees. And I got connected to that particular person, had a great um, talk with them, chat with them. And then I got invited to the application procedure for becoming a psychiatrist. So I went into that procedure and I really liked it. I think the conversation went well and ultimately I was allowed to enter the residency to become a psychiatrist. But after hearing that, I was on the one hand very happy. On the other hand, I actually realized that I didn't mention during that whole process how much I liked the elective, how much I liked the research part. So now I was able to continue on a more clinical route. But I also felt, okay, wow, there's still something that's missing. So when I started to do the clinical work, I think it was one of the very first opportunities that I got that I went back to the medical head of the department and I said, well, hey, I really like this job. I'm very much in my place and I want to continue this, but I also want to do some research because I really like the elective and I miss out being in that domain still. So then a couple of months later, there was the opportunity for a research project and he reached out to me and he said, hey... Do you remember once you came to me and you said you still liked it? Are you interested in joining this one? So that's why how I ultimately got into both ways. Wow, that's a, such a cool combination. <laughs> yeah, but it was also, I think, a combination of timing because I was trying to get into a thing that I really liked and really wanted, but then I realized, oh, maybe it's not complete. And mm-hmm. I also took another step of trying to add that in. And it's something that I think is very valuable for all of us. Sometimes you're taking around and you're not entirely sure if that's the complete thing. So just keep going there and keep trying to expand. How about you, Yara? Why did you become a researcher? So I became a researcher. Also, I think it wasn't specifically a choice. I just really enjoyed what I was doing. So I really enjoyed my bachelor's program already and then my master's that I was following. And during my master's, I had the opportunity to do two different research internships. So one was in Amsterdam at the hospital working with children with PTSD. And one was in Melbourne, where I ended up doing my PhD as well. And it was also with young people. So the focus was definitely already on young people back then. And it was about young people with depression. So I was really interested in all these different types of mental uh, ill health. And I really enjoyed learning all these new things. So I enjoyed learning 
about the brain. I also found the brain really fascinating. So I looked at brain structure as well as brain connectivity in these young people. And I think I just really enjoyed that. So I kept doing the same thing. So that's for my master's, how I rolled into my PhD. And then during my PhD, that's when I realized that wanted to branch out a bit also to mental well-being and then I just really enjoyed what I was doing so I contacted people in the Netherlands to move back to the Netherlands and um, ended up doing a postdoc here and then I uh, was introduced to the Healthy Star program and I thought that really fit my interests so that's how I ended up here. So it was just a case of enjoying learning new things and not just about the topics of mental health but also the way we study it so the different views that we can take on a topic, so a clinical view or a more neurobiological view and combining those different views to try and get an entire picture of a certain topic. That's great. Thanks so much for sharing. So yeah, it's so interesting to hear that your PhD abroad. So I was hoping to hear a bit more how you actually got to that point. It was a really nice experience and I've really enjoyed it. It was also a bit of a coincidence. So I but while I did my master's internship at the AMC hospital in Amsterdam, I met someone who was going to move to Melbourne to start her own lab there. Um, and we really got along and I was really interested in the topic. She also, she was the head of a worldwide collaboration on neuroimaging and depression. So she had lots of cool collaborations. Um, and I just really wanted to work with her. So I asked her if that was possible. And because we was just starting a new lab in Melbourne, it was the perfect timing and I could. I was her first student there. So I was really lucky. And it definitely wasn't planned that way. So it was just a coincidence. And that's what I meant with I didn't really make a, a choice at a certain point that I wanted to definitely be a researcher. I just really enjoyed what I was doing and was really lucky to get these opportunities as well. Thanks. It's great to hear. I can totally resonate with that. Because we actually moved to Toronto in Canada uh, several years ago, got back about a year ago, which was also not planned at all. And in our situation, it was for my uh, partner's position that he had to move abroad and we brought along the kids. And it's kind of a journey that you just embark on and not really knowing how it ends, but it ended well and we had a great time. And Mm. it's great to hear your experience. And did you, I was just wondering, did you experience any challenges as well moving abroad? I can imagine in clinical work it might be even different than in research. Yeah, very much so. You really have to start all over again, which is quite tough from the clinical work. It starts with getting your all your certificates and diplomas, like uh, recertificated and reorganized, but also trying to build up your life again mm. um, in a new town um, uh, is quite challenging. But it also gave me the opportunity to take those steps and to make a kind of a new start, but also to learn from all these experiences. Also to be more mindful currently, whenever I meet new people who make a new start in the Netherlands, I'm more aware of the challenges that they can face. But definitely it's um, it's up and downs, which I think resembles my whole PhD trajectory, which is always with ups and downs Mm. and trying to connect with people that can support you to just stick with it and continue. I feel like from both our stories, you can take that it's really important. The people you meet can have such a big influence on your trajectory and they can be really important as support as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, so this brings us to our next section, the present. If you had to explain youth well-being to your grandma, how would you do that? 
Oh, I think so. The work we do, it's really quite broad. Um, but what I would explain is that we aim to give young people the opportunity to grow to their full potential. So you don't have to necessarily feel great all the time. I think life comes with ups and downs, comes with challenges, as we just discussed. So it's okay to not feel okay all the time. So that's part of it. So I don't think the aim is to be extremely well all the time. I think the aim is just to be able to reach your full potential. So it, it's okay to show um, some fluctuations. So in our work, we focus on mental well-being, not just the mental ill health part, but focusing on this, the positive aspects, the, the protective factors that I mentioned, they might be able to prevent people from uh, developing mental ill health. Um, so we also look at different factors that might affect it from biological to more environmental factors, for example. So it really is broad, but we try to focus on this positive aspect, mental well-being and the different factors that might affect it. How would you define it from your role as researcher and practitioner? I'm actually trying to explain this quite a lot to my grandpa. So for the clinician part, I usually tell people that I'm a doctor for young people, for children and adolescents who suffer from mental problems. In my role, I try to listen to children and adolescents and their parents or caregivers who come to our outpatient clinic, try to listen to what kind of mental health challenges they face and what got them into that situation. We also try to hear how it impacts their day-to-day -day functioning. And I actually switched to saying we because we're a team. So I never do this work all by myself. It's a team uh, collaborating with other mental health practitioners that we work with. The situations can be quite diverse or broad. So sometimes adolescents can be quite impacted by mental health challenges and they are not able to still live at home anymore or not able to continue at school. So then we meet with them inside the hospital and at other moments their mental health challenges will impact them much less. And it's all about trying to understand how that works and what we can do or how we can support them to regain their path back to um, overall mental well-being. For the research part, my overall aim is to contribute step by step to improved mental health care for the current generation. So I really do see the research as an addition to the clinical work that I'm doing. So in the clinical work, we also experience some gaps, some things that we aren't able to properly support or that just take too much time. And then within the research, I try to contribute to at least some improvements in that domain. So I hope for the next generation, things will be a little less tough. I really like how you mentioned that they are intertwined. It's, they're not separate roles. They really yeah. affect each other. Can you tell about a recent meaningful moment at work that is related to mental well-being, which has resonated with you personally or professionally? I think one recent moment. So we're currently looking at, in some schools in the Netherlands, in some high schools, there are smartphone bans in place now because the Minister of Education, he strongly recommended or strongly advised for schools to put some rules in place about this. So some schools already have these bans in place. And there are some scientific studies that looked at the effects on school performance, but not necessarily on mental well-being. And because adolescence is such an important time for social development as well, we were really interested in how this ban might affect the mental well-being of young people. 
Um, so we're still this study is still ongoing, but we already had a focus group with some young people because we were trying to also incorporate their experiences so far into the study. And what I find really interesting is that they mentioned, well, first of all, they mentioned that they use their phone more at home now than at school, which was really surprising to me and something I really hadn't thought of. So that really demonstrated how important it is to involve young people in, in the work that we do. Um, but the second thing that struck me was their individual different experiences. So I think for some people it might be protective to put this ban in place at school, whereas for others this phone could also have played like a role in their social connection. So they might have more contacts outside of school than inside their school. So the phone might be a protective factor for them, for their mental well-being. So as I mentioned, the study is still ongoing, so I'm not sure this will also be found in the quantitative part of the study, but in the focus groups with the young people, we did see these individual effects. For uh, So the ban had a different effect on the individuals. So I think that, yeah, that was what really struck me, that there are such big differences between people. And what about you? Have you experienced anything recently? Too many things. I think that's the one of the advantages or the nice things about doing clinical work is when you work a lot with young people and their families, there's every day there's new experiences that usually are quite inspiring also for us as uh, mental health care practitioners. In the past couple of years, I used to work a lot with young people who experience psychotic symptoms, which can be quite impactful on their lives. And especially during the phase, we used to do an outpatient clinic for adolescents aged like 14 up to 30 years old old, which is a phase in life that people usually also develop quite a lot of milestones in terms of uh, finishing up your education, finding your first job, finding a partner relationship, maybe even getting children. So when um, mental health symptoms occur, particularly during this time frame, it can be very impactful. And I clearly remember being involved in the mental health care of one of my patients. She was a student when she first got sick, first experienced her psychotic symptoms, but she didn't have a lot of support. And gradually, she actually seemed to be losing more and more. She lost her house. She wasn't able to stay in university. She got into a troubled financial situation and ultimately she ended up on the streets. Where luckily for her, at a certain point in time, there were some mental health care supports was started. She received treatment, medication for her uh, psychotic symptoms, and she got into a whole program which helped her regain her access to school, regain access to financial contributions and um, safe housing. And ultimately, after a couple of years, she was actually able to re-enter university, went into social work and really put up a program of helping other people in a similar position uh, like hers. And that's really inspiring if you're able to walk along for a certain time and see how people show resiliency to such impactful experiences that they go through. Wow, that's such a beautiful uh, story. And I, I agree, it's so inspiring to hear that. Yeah, and what I take from these encounters and so this particular patient, but also others, is how resilient young people can be. So as much as we're able as a whole community to support them by getting back on track, mm. by whatever way it may be for them. And that I think that alludes to what you just mentioned. It's very individual. Some people need certain things to regain their confidence or to get back on track, whereas for others it might be different and it might be during a different timing. But when we're able to kind of support people, find their way and live up to their potential, I think that's really great and inspiring work. Mm. And I also find it interesting that we both mentioned experiences with young people. So you in your clinical work and I during my the focus groups that we did. So the group that we work with are the people that inspire us, I think. Which hopefully is for a lot of other people because it's the young generation, right? Yeah. So that's, that's our future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
us to our final section, the future. What changes would you like to see in the upcoming years regarding research or practice on mental well-being or mental health? I think to start with the research, I was a few months ago at a large presentation of a large cohort study. And what I noticed during those presentations, it wasn't only the researcher who was presenting. They each brought along a participant with lived experience. So it was really great to see that they were actually doing the presentations of the research with the both of them. And I think that's a great development that I hope to see continue in the future, that it's the research is continuing in this direction, that it's co-development and co-research, and that we get to work along with people who have lived experience during the research as well. And I think that is something that resembles the same approach in clinical care, that we value much more and more patients, I must say, because that's the position that we see them in. So at least the experiences of young people, as well as their parents and their caregivers and all the others who are involved, that we really do want to hear their experiences, take it very seriously and build from there. And that's something that, at least how I see it, is quite a change compared to like several years ago, where it was more like, okay, we have certain knowledge and then it's a doctor or whoever is the practitioner tells a patient or tells the family, okay, now you can do this and this and this, and then, well, it should go that way. And I think nowadays we appreciate much more the complexity of mental health challenges, but it also brings along the challenges that it's much more complex than maybe we hoped it would be. There's no easy fix. There's no easy solution to this. But on the other hand, it really is intriguing, the resiliency that people show. And it's great to see that. I hope we will be able to learn much more about that and how we can build much more upon the resiliency. So it's more of a dialogue with the people than yeah. just a one-way... Very much, very much. Yeah. And how about you? What kind of changes would you like to see? I think it's very much in line with what you said that we should embrace the complexity of the problems and also use different views. So, for example, what we're doing here, I'm really enjoying that. So not just look at it from a researcher perspective. So what I'm I'm using more of a psychology perspective and you're using more of a clinician perspective. So I think you, combining all those different views to get a full picture of what is going on. So include different disciplines and also do it together with young people. But also, for example, societal organizations that have the same aim. So there are many different societal organizations in the Netherlands that also aim to increase mental well-being in the current gen young generation. So con we should also collaborate with those people because we could provide them, for example, knowledge from scientific research and they might be much more experienced in reaching young people. And I think if we combine all these different views and all these different capacities, then we could really make a change. That's great. And can you share an example? Let's say I'm a psychology student and I very much like this view. So let's collaborate and let's broaden this. How do I actually go about that? So I think it's something that has been happening over the recent years. So I feel like it's happening in many different labs in all over the world, actually. But for example, in the Netherlands, there are also these what we call knowledge institutes, like the Netherlands Youth Institute, NEAE, and they aim to be sort of the bridge between society and science. So that's an example of a 
an organization that really tries to combine those two views. So organizations like that, I think, could be of interest. But we're also still learning. We're definitely not there yet. And I think there's still lots that we can change to optimize this. And sometimes we still stay in our own little bubble. And we it's easier to just look at it from our one perspective that we think we understand. So I think if you're listening to this and you think I would like to contribute to this, then there's definitely still lots of room for you to improve this. So what changes would you like to see in the upcoming years regarding giving kids a healthy start in the Netherlands in general? Oh, that's a great question. It also seems like a philosophical or political one even. Um, I think like, and my view is biased because I I tend to see a lot of children and families who suffer from mental health challenges and problems and hardships in a broader sense that can happen in people's lives. So for me, a good start would actually be providing all people with equal understandable information about health, which may sound easy, but to me is very challenging that we get to reach all people, all Dutch people, and actually provide them with information how you can take care of your physical and mental health and put them in a position that they're also able to do it. So lessen stress and be mindful about stress and provide information and skills, how to deal with stress if it occurs, starting from the onset, including when women are pregnant and when uh, babies aren't born yet. So from the very onset on throughout life. Sounds easy, but it's a rather complex and challenging task. But I do hope that in the upcoming years, we'll get there more and more step by step. I think it's a beautiful goal to work towards. Yes, very much so. Very much work in progress. Yes. (laughs) And how about you? How do you see giving kids a healthy start in the Netherlands? So I think next to this focus on mental ill health that you mentioned, I feel like in schools we could focus, for example, on the things that I mentioned, so the fluctuations in mood that can be normal, so normalized, uh, that you might experience ups and downs, but also give kids the tools to be able to emotionally and socially develop. So I mentioned schools because that is a place that most kids go to. So that could be a place where all children could learn about this instead of perhaps just the lucky few. So in that sense, if people learn there, they could bring it along for the rest of their lives and it might be helpful to them for the rest of their lives and hopefully can contribute to mental well-being. But in that, I think a small side note is that at schools, we shouldn't focus on how to deal with mental health problems, for example, because I think it is okay if you experience them and we shouldn't focus too much on how to deal with that because then you might also sort of become stuck in this loop of ruminating about things. So not just more of a focus on how to socially and emotionally, for example, deal with a stressor or things like that. So for a final question, how do you stay motivated in your job as a researcher? So I stay motivated by talking to young people, the focus groups that I mentioned before, but also that I keep learning new things. That was the reason that I got into research in the first place. And the great teams that I work with, my colleagues, they also have really cool projects. We also collaborate on really cool projects. And the last one, I think, is that I hope that my work will in the end contribute to hopefully having a potential impact on mental well-being in young people. And it might not be directly, but hopefully in the future it can play a role. And that's what really motivates me, hoping to contribute to making the world a better place. And it sounds like this really big cliche thing, but I really hope that, I'm sure it won't make a big difference, but I really hope that I can contribute a bit to a small difference. And what about you? What keeps you motivated? 
several things. So for the clinical part, I think it's the easiest because working with young people and, and families and all who are involved is a kind of like a direct inspiring situation that you continue with, which usually over time and in a better place that we've been able as a mental health care team to support families often. Not always, I must say, but usually uh, in some way we do. It also helps me to sometimes take a step back and try to think about previous experience, such as what I initially talked about, like encountering a patient who over time got better and was able to be less impacted by mental health. So sometimes it's also about taking a step back and not staying in that moment that things might be challenging, but take a little bit of a view in the upcoming years. For the research part, what really motivates me is the collaborations that we have, even including this conversation. It's so inspiring to have collaborations with different people and when things come together. And usually you don't actually get to see that when you're right in the middle of the work. It's just tough and you have to meet deadlines. You have to continue and kind of get through it. But in the end, when you have cool meetings where you get to present your results or even very early on when you're trying to collaborate on a project and you get together and you think about how shall we address this? How do we do that? I really do like that experience of collaboration, getting together and trying to develop a plan and finish on that one. Thank you both so much for your valuable insights for your inspiring stories and for your ideas about how we can better work with and for youth in practice and in research in the future. Thank you all for listening and talk soon. We want to thank Minor Revisions for the music, Lotte Koyman-Gochewski for the logo design, Max Kersten for audio editing, and Zeynep Alpay for their artwork. We also want to thank the Healthy Start Consortium for the funding of the spin-off series.